0: Welcome, welcome, welcome to "Looking California and Feeling Minnesota, everybody's favorite cinema podcast. My name is Michael McCaffrey. I'm the "Looking California part of this uh, equation. I'm an acting coach and a writer out here in sunny Southern
1: California, and I am joined by... Barry Anderson. I'm a director based out of the Midwest here in Minneapolis. Today, sunny and beautiful. Um, And uh, we thought we would do... We're going to mix it up yet again. We're uh, continuing with our quarantine list-a-thon. Uh, but we thought instead of doing a single movie, we're going to select a obscure director who's directed some quality movies, talk about a few of those movies, and then in your spare time, you can go out and uh, see which ones you either own or a few of them are in streaming or if you actually want to rent a few. But uh, Mike, why don't you tell us uh, who's our who's our lucky director this week?
0: Well, as Barry said, this is a very special episode <laughs> of Looking California, feeling Minnesota. And as we were talking before we came on, we were saying it's sort of like The Different Strokes episode where the child molester's on. It's sort of a serious episode in in a uh, (laughs) sitcom-y setting. Um, So today we are going to be talking about John McTiernan. Now, if you're just a normal human being, you're probably going, who in the world (laughs) is John McTiernan? I've never heard of this person
1: all you have to do is dangle a few of his movies and I guess most people have seen and or definitely have heard of them.
0: So I'm going to go through
1: some of the filmography
0: of John McTiernan. Um, John McTiernan just, let me just throw out some names <laughs> of films he's done. So his first film is Nomads in 1986, which I've never seen. I've never um, seen it. I, To be honest, I, I don't think I've ever even heard of it. So there's Nomads. Okay thank you for nothing next movie predator predator starring of course arnold schwarzenegger yeah, let's not get that mixed
1: up with predators the predator it's just the original predator right with arnold it's schwarzenegger, the original
0: carl predator. carl
1: weathers yes, <laughs> jesse the body ventura
0: yet, Duke. next next president of the united states jesse <laughs> the body ventura um a dear friend of mine you heard it and, here first uh, yes <laughs> His next movie, Die Hard. So just think about that. He, he launches basically two hugely successful franchises in Predator and Die Hard back-to-back. In back-to-back years, by the way. 1987, yeah. Predator. 1988, Die Hard. 1990, Hunt for Red October. Uh, 1992, Medicine Man. No, no, thank you. 1993, <laughs> Last Action Hero. Big flop. 1995, Die Hard with a Vengeance. The third in the Die Hard uh, franchise. Very successful. Um, 1999, The 13th Warrior, and The Thomas Crown Affair. Very successful movie. 2002, Rollerball. Okay. yes, you'll learn as we go along, <laughs> Rollerball is, is, is an albatross around Mr. McTiernan's neck. And finally, Basic in 2003. And he's not made a film since then. And we will get into why he hasn't made a film since then. Which <laughs> Funny is a story. Pretty, yeah, <laughs> which is a movie script in and of itself. And yes. I hope someone someday makes this film. Um, so McTiernan, why you probably have never heard of this person, if you, know, you don't work in the industry, is he is not an auteur. He does not um, use cinema to sort of express himself creatively. He is a craftsman, and he is a master craftsman, and he makes mainstream, um, you know, sort of grown-up entertainment that people really like. And it's not for kids, you know, it's not geared towards, you know, uh, 14-year-old boys, as many movies were at that time and and are now. Um, He makes movies for grown-ups, and he's a really skilled filmmaker. Now he's never, you know, going to win an Oscar and, and, nor should he, but he's the type of person that just gets overlooked when you talk about filmmakers because he's not an archer because he's not, you know, the, the sort of Scorsese, uh, you know, last week we did, uh, there will be blood, you know, with Paul Thomas Anderson. He's not that type of filmmaker. He's, he, he, he's an earner he's somebody in Hollywood who works a lot or who did because they know he's going to make a movie and he can draw in talent and draw in money. Um, to get well, it I, I
1: think one of the reasons we picked this is there, you know, everybody hears about the big name directors, they're auteurs, but Hollywood used to be littered with the workman style directors that weren't big names, but they could, you know, talent liked working with them. They generated money. And they actually understood the craft of what it takes to put together a movie and over the last 20 to 30 years that has been the dying breed in hollywood you still have your you know martin scorsese you still have steven spielberg you still got christopher nolan you know you still got all these all these people that people can name off but then it's like okay we're gonna launch a franchise let's pick somebody new that we can pay six dollars to the studio will control the whole thing and therefore we can make a good movie in lieu of having a skilled director. And we wanted to point out that the craft of directing matters and maybe dive back into why why the move away from having a quality director like a John McTiernan is a mistake for all of us who like watching and being entertained by movies.
0: Yeah, and and McTiernan, the the fascinating thing about him is that there is, you know, for as much as he's he's basically a company man, you know, making sort of uh, big budget entertainment, there is no equivalent to him today. None. The, the, you can't be like, oh, well, you know, uh, Paul Thomas Anderson is the Martin Scorsese of today, or, um, you know, uh, uh, Christopher Nolan is the, Scorsese, is the uh, Spielberg of today. Um, I, I, there is I have no a John col- McTiernan.
1: The closest allegory or closest comparison, which you'll see is why it's flawed, was up until a few years ago, Brett Ratner. Brett Ratner was not a skilled director, but he was the John McTiernan yeah. that like, okay, if we just put him in, he can finish, execute, and we don't have to really deal with it. The pr- difference between Brett Ratner and John McTiernan is John McTiernan really is a fantastic filmmaker. yeah, you know? And, and Brett-
0: also, McTiernan makes films geared toward an, uh, a more mature audience. Yes. Yes. And, and Ratner was making sort of films geared towards teenage boys for the most because he's has the emotional he is. Uh, intelligence of a 14 as an adult 14-year-old. man, is
1: the same thing. Yeah. Yes. <laughs>
0: yes. Um, so, uh, I want to, okay, so we're going to go through some of these movies. Uh, some of them are streaming. A bunch of them are on HBO right now. Um, uh, Die Hard, Hunt for Red October, um, Thomas Crown Affair are all right now on uh, HBO. There's streaming service, uh, which you can get for free now, I think. Um, or, or just on plain it's old Five five 500,
1: 500 uh, hours of programming for free. So it's not everything, but it's a chunk of them. Yeah.
0: So those are streaming. And then, you know, some aren't predators and things like that. So we're going to go through some of the ones and just point out the brilliance of McTiernan. Now, what's so fascinating to me about McTiernan being not an auteur, being a craftsman, is the fa- is his background. Now, he grew up, his father was a lawyer and an actor. Uh, he grew up in Albany, New York. God help him. And he went to Juilliard, which is crazy. <laughs> that is crazy. And, and he got his MFA from uh, AFI, which sounds like a lot of letters, but it's the American Film Institute. And that's a big deal. because Not a lot of people go there. Yeah. He graduated in 75. And, you know, so obviously a, a very talented guy. Um, Then he gets his first big, big break uh, doing his first film is Nomads, which he also wrote. And then he does Predator in 1987, which he just directed. He did not write. And Predator, he has Arnold Schwarzenegger starring in the movie. And as we said, he has all of these um, really solid supporting actors, which as we go through his filmography, that is something that I want to talk about a lot. Tem. Is how good he is at casting. Yes, he is so good at casting these smaller supporting roles, and he makes stars of these people. So perfect example is Predator. Jesse Ventura is a famous actor, is a famous uh, wrestler at this point, mm-hmm. Jesse the Body, um, and they put him in this movie, and he becomes a star. Yes, by which, by the way leads to him becoming governor of your state yes (laughs) yes there is a direct line from predator to the governor's mansion in uh feeling
1: minnesota correct yeah i think i think he actually stopped staying in the governor's mansion because it was too run down so i think that was part of the the thing so i don't know how much time he actually spent at the mansion right Right. uh, yes
0: but you know and the And then you talk about, like, Bill Duke is in that movie and and, uh, Carl Weathers and, you know what I mean? Like, solid, interesting uh, supporting actors to go along with, of course, Schwarzenegger doing his thing. Um, Die Hard. So, well, first of all, Predator starts this enormous franchise that is still going on today, you know, limping on its final legs. But, like, it's a really good movie for what it is. It's compelling. It's interesting. It's even visually interesting. Yep. Um, the creature, of course, is, is cool looking, sort of this weird looking thing. And it just really works. And he gets the most, McTiernan gets the most out of his movie stars. He's very good at drawing out movie star performances. So he gets one from Schwarzenegger um, and the rest of the game. <laughs> Die Hard comes along. And we get, first of all, they went through a bunch of people who were going to star in Die Hard, but didn't. Burt Reynolds, of all people, were going to be the lead in Die Hard. We don't <laughs> think about it now. It's like, yeah, yeah, Um, Whole bunch of people. But Bruce Willis does it. And he gives a perfectly movie star-making, smirky Bruce Willis performance. And I remember seeing Die Hard. I was in high school. And I was just like, man, what a movie. <laughs> it's like... <laughs> it has everything in it it's exceedingly well made it, it 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 just flows but what stands out to me now in watching it again i watched it again yesterday for the first time and i don't even know how long is the pacing is perfect yes the supporting actors are phenomenal. phenomenal so you i mean just phenomenal so there's the cocky guy at the office party. Yes. Who's like doing blow Hans and like,
1: booby. Yeah.
0: <laughs> right. <laughs> Phenomenal. Right. And he that performance is drawn out of that guy. Of course, there's Alan Rickman as, you know, the, the bad guy. And by the way, uh,
1: I think that was his first performance in a feature film. Was it really? I believe that was Alan Rickman's first first foray into cinema. Oh, wow. And turns in maybe the greatest bad guy performance of all time. So good. I mean, I, the reason I want to say that is, again, is he picked him. Like, I yeah. know he was a good actor in London and all that. But I mean, like, that 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 was not an obvious casting. And Bruce Willis was not an obvious casting. And a lot of these and, people were not obvious casting. And it exactly. was ballpark. <laughs> and one of my favorite things, the
0: first time I saw it, was one of the lead henchmen in the movie gets into, like, a real mano-a-mano fight with Bruce Willis. And it's because Bruce Willis had killed his brother earlier in the movie and they have this fight. It's really an interesting visually the fight and it's choreographed interestingly. And the guy fighting has a very interesting fight style, which I'm into this sort of thing. And I come to find out later that it's Alexander Gudinov who is maybe one of the three greatest ballet dancers in the history of the art form. (laughs) Uh, This Russian ballet dancer, um, it's basically the only movie he ever does, and he dies a few years after this, by the way, of alcoholism, which is horrifying. But like, he's so good in this movie, and he's such a great villain, and the way he like, you see him fight, you think like, oh, he's doing some martial art. He's basically doing ballet in this, in this fight. And it's such, and so casting, good enough. Another oh God, the guys in this movie are so funny. Um, what's his name? I wrote it down, Paul Gleason plays the assistant chief of police or something yes he's this bombastic ass and he's the principal from um Uh, breakfast club yep right he plays the assistant chief of police in this movie and he's so good he's just this blowhard and he has two of the greatest lines in film history if you ask me um the first is when the FBI, which those two guys are great, agents, <laughs> Johnson, Special Earth. Agent Johnson and Johnson. <laughs> and so it's stuff like that. The movie's filled with like little things. These two special agents, one one is black, one is white, and they're both really good actors who I don't know their names, but like they've been around forever. And they're Special Agent Johnson and Special Agent Johnson. And at one point in the movie, the white special Agent Johnson gets on the phone and is talking, and he goes, "This is Special Agent Johnson?" No. The other one. It's, just, it's like, it's this throw away line, but it's so well done. But Paul Gleason has two of the greatest lines. He says, um, when the FBI get blown up, um, it's this big spectacle of a scene. And then they cut to Paul Gleason looking up in horror. And he just says sort of to himself, oh man, we're going to need some new FBI guys. <laughs> <laughs> and then when Alan Rickman falls out of the building. He's the bad guy, and Bruce Willis beats him, and he falls out of the building. They cut to Paul Gleason again, and he says, oh, boy, I hope that's not a hostage. <laughs> <laughs> and it's so good. <laughs> but, like, what's so great about it is McTiernan drawing out that performance, that very dry performance, but also cutting directly to it after this huge scene of fight and, and drama and all of this explosion, all this stuff. He cuts to this small little line and it just works. And it's the pacing that works. Um, so Die Hard is the one I watched most recently, although I've seen Red Hot October uh, very recently too. And I also watched uh, The Thomas Crown Affair, which we can talk about. But throughout all these movies, he casts extremely well yeah. and he gets the best from the people he puts in these positions. And like, I, like we said, Predator becomes a huge franchise. Die Hard is still going. It becomes a huge franchise, and he doesn't write any of these movies. In fact, I didn't even know this till yesterday. Die Hard is based on a book. Yeah, I would, I will pay three dollars to anybody who
1: read that book. Here, 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 here is a here is a tidbit for you. So, since this is quarantine, there okay. is a series on Netflix called "The Movies That Made Us," and they have an episode on Die Hard. And the book was originally optioned by none other than Frank Sinatra to play the lead role. Wow. And it took like 30 years for it to be made and he was still under contract. <laughs> if it got made that it was going to be like a 60 or 70 year old Frank Sinatra in that role. And uh, thank, thank our lucky stars. I do love myself some Frank Sinatra, but he bowed out <laughs> and opened the way for our friend, uh, uh, Bruce Willis. Jeez. But it, it is a fascinating story from book to screen um, that's w- definitely worth a watch. So it's a side tangent about this movie. But if you're a die hard fan, uh, maybe the greatest Christmas movie ever made, um, you should check it out. It's on Netflix. It,
0: and it, it really is a great action movie. And it, it's, it's at the height of the action boom in Hollywood.
1: When... But, the, but the reason that I, I remember seeing it, because you know when I, it came out... I was still fairly young, and uh, I wasn't wasn't allowed to watch R-rated movies at the time. And my uncle called my parents, and they're like, "You have to see this movie." Like, yes, it's like a little bit gory, you know, it's a little bit a little bit much, but they're like, "You have to see this." So my parents rented it, and they're like, "Well, we'll let you see it." So I felt like I was like seeing something I shouldn't be able to see in the first place. But what was awesome is like I love all of the eighties action movies, you know, kind of that uber macho, you know, kind of almost invincible. And this was in that vein of like that testosterone laden film, but yet it was just a dude and he ran around and he wasn't like physically better. He didn't have any powers. He wasn't overly buff. And he basically just kind of through hard work, through some dumb luck and through some of his kind of personality somehow made it all work. And that I think is why it connected with so many people. It took what people were wanting in this genre that had been building for a decade and it finally gave people a character or a way in to the movie where they could either like, Oh, you know, not that people are thinking, Hey, if I was in that position, I would have done as well, but it just, it, it allows more like, okay, if I was like that, yeah, I could see myself doing that. Or, you know, sometimes when you watch Sylvester Stallone, you know, jump off the side of a mountain while shooting bow and arrows, you're like, well, that's cool, but I would never do that. And this is one you're like, well, if I'm stuck in that elevator, what would I do? And it just, it, it, it allows an entrance for the audience into a movie in a way that hadn't been captured previous to this one. Um, and I'm going to say I totally agree with you on his casting prowess. What you were talking about with pacing, and I watched uh, The Thomas Crown Affair um, and Hunt for Red October and uh, Die Hard with The Vengeance here this past week as well. And the one thing that he does is he leaves in these little scenes or little moment, or little pause where I think nowadays they always cut them out. And what's weird is when you're analyzing how that affects the rest of the movie, it builds towards something. And there's there's two parallels that I can think of off the top of my head, both in Hunt for Red October and in Die Hard. One of my favorite things, I, I enjoyed it when I first watched it, but now that I've been involved in storytelling for all these years, the brilliance of Die Hard, when he's told on the plane, you know, if you're... <laughs> if you're flying and nervous when you get to your hotel room take off your shoes you oh, yeah. know, make knots with your you know, and it's such an in like you're like what and then then when he's doing it you know you hear about it then you see him doing it and you get a good chuckle then you get interrupted then you come back and you're like oh he's still in bare feet And you're like well that would suck then you well, go back in and then you come back and you're like oh no the bad guys noticed now it's a problem and then you know in this little this little kind of throwaway line that they could have easily just cut out or they, you know, cause again, let's say that he had just left his room with bare feet. Like, let's just say that was in the script and you didn't hear about the old lady on the plane. And you didn't get that laugh when he's like, you know, making fun of himself or trying this crazy old lady's like thing. He just walks out and you're like, well, why didn't he put on shoes? Like right away, the audience would start to get irritated. You're like, well, I don't, you know, whatever. And this was the whole thing. You're like, Oh, oh, it's like this tragic moment of like, he made a decision that was trying to help him and it made it worse. And they did the same thing in, to a less successful degree in Hunt for Red October with the flying. You know, he's like, I don't like flying. And what I loved, the thing that I loved, is he talks about the main character in Hunt for Red October. It's like, I don't like to fly. So you have him on a plane, on a commercial jet in, you know, a nice seat. And the lady comes up, he's like, oh, you should sleep. He's like, I don't sleep on planes. And then he starts to talk about turbulence and she's like, well, you should try. And she goes away, and you see him there. He's not going to try. And then the camera just tilts down, and you just get this tiny shake, you know, this tiny little turbulence in the glass. And, and again, you could have just cut when he said, no, thank you, and walked away. You didn't have to bring that camera down. Then the next time you see him, he's flying out to the aircraft carrier, and it's obviously much more violent. (laughs) And these people are talking about how terrible it is. So you keep seeing this continued thing. And then near the climax, when they have to fly him out to the submarine – They're like, well, the only way to do that is to put you on a helicopter and basically fly out there, you know, blah, blah, blah. And that's where it would normally end. And again, I don't know how much of it's script or how much of it's like kind of him walking through it. They didn't just say, you're going to go out there and run out of gas. They're like, we're going to strip it of everything. And basically, you're going to go out there and most likely you're going to crash and then you're going to freeze to death in the ocean. And they just and they've already And they gave exposition prior to that about how he had been in a helicopter
0: accident. Correct, yes. Yeah. And so it like adds exactly. And it's so funny. First of all, the shot in Red October, it's the beginning when he's flying on the plane and they tilt down to show the turbulence. Guess who borrowed that shot? Yep. Mr. Spielberg, (laughs) Mr. Spielberg, who (laughs) likes to borrow things. Um, He borrowed that shot for Jurassic Park and quite well, by the way. And of course, uh, everybody said he was a genius for doing it. Um, But, you know, John McTiernan did it first. And, Here's something about Die Hard, which I, I, I didn't want to interrupt your rant there because it was flying. Um, <laughs> Go for it. But the foot thing is the key to that movie working. And that's because it's everything you said. It's, it's how we relate to Bruce Willis. He's not a superhero. He's a person yeah. who's vulnerable. And it's not vulnerable like, oh, my wife is there. I could be emotionally hurt. It's like, We've all been in that situation where you're afraid to step through stuff because you're barefoot and there's, whether it's you're at the beach and the sand is hot or whatever the case may be, and his feet are vulnerable and we immediately connect to him and it makes everything he does, we're, we're there with him and we can feel that with him. So with the glass in his feet, I mean, you can't watch that and not be like, oh man because you just know how that feels. And that propels the entire movie. And it starts right at the beginning.
1: And I I have always said that the, the best classic movies interject humor into them. Like movies that are timeless from the 30s on rarely are just straight drama where there's nothing funny in them and it's just a well executed. Those don't hold up as well over time. Really great dramas with moments of levity are like the key. And he does that in all of his movies. And it's a fine line sometimes between being, oh, my God, that was really corny. Like people like Arnold Schwarzenegger pulled off corny lines and it's epic. And I've seen yeah. movies without Arnold Schwarzenegger say a similar line. You're like, no, that just doesn't work. So it's, it's, a, it's a very tricky thing that he pulls off very often. And going back to the, the feet thing, when he kills uh, Gutenov's brother early in the movie, he immediately takes off his shoes because again, it reminds us he's vulnerable. And then he tries to put on the shoe and a lesser director and a lesser actor would try to put on the shoe wouldn't fit. And he'd throw it away and be like, Oh, it doesn't fit or something like that. But he personalizes it. says, (laughs) I have to kill someone with feet smaller than my sister-in-law or something like that. Where like he, he, he brought it to like, Oh, you, you can, you can relate to a relative or someone in your family that you're like, Oh yeah, that person does have tiny feet. And that would be really, irritating knowing that here you could fix your problem but you can't and it was just such a a personal human touch that makes it funny it makes it real but continues the the the, uh, the vulnerability that you know again most movies now i mean perfect example um it's not a john mcturnan movie but go watch i believe it's the fourth or fifth die hard after his after die hard with a vengeance which was the third in the series it shifted from being john McClain to John McClane, the superhero, there was no yeah. longer stakes. There's no longer pain. Like he, he's turned into a caricature of himself. And those first three don't fall into that trap. And I think that's part of the reason that the franchise has lost some of its steam, is because you're like, oh, this is just another movie I've seen before, and they they've seemed to forgot the essence of what made that character lovable. Yeah.
0: Well, it's funny you talk about humor and and throwaway scenes. McTiernan. Everything matters. And so he does, there's no scenes where he just sort of throws something away and he's just showing it to show it. So in Die Hard, their perfect example is there's this tension building for the police department. They're about to storm the Nakatomi building, which by the way, I don't know if there's a better name than the Nakatomi <laughs> building in the history of cinema. It's so perfect. It is it's perfect. fantastic. So they're about to storm the... (laughs) The the Nakatomi Plaza. (laughs) Nakatomi Plaza. Uh, And so SWAT guys, you know, who are notoriously in movies, they're these tough, you know, cowboy types. And uh, John McClane sort of is like, you macho assholes or whatever. And they're running up, you know, doing these SWAT runs up to the building. And it's sort of taking a piss on these guys. It's funny. And at one point, this guy doesn't even have a line, but he's a SWAT you know, guy and he's running through these thorn bushes and he stops because <laughs> he <goes> his, <laughs> his arm gets stuck on, on one of the thorn bushes and he goes, ow, like that. And then they cut to inside the building oh where gosh. the bad guys is waiting for them to come. And he's like at the front desk <laughs> and he's like looking all menacing and he like glances down and you don't see what he's looking at. And he glances down again. And then he looks around to make sure nobody's watching. And then he reaches under and he steals a candy bar. Yes. And he starts eating this candy bar. And it's funny. And it's like, those could have been just throwaway, like build tension. Here we go. This is going to be an action sequence. But it's like, he makes this real and it makes you connect to it and sort of chuckle. And it well, makes the violence that follows much more sort of palatable it, it, because it's not been-
1: quite real you get this s curve then by putting in these moments where it's not just we're always at this level that's the pacing and kind of the, the the flow of the movie but everybody's been in that situation where you're like okay we need to be quiet now you know for some reason you know either going to pray or you're like in class and then what do you you immediately have to cough you know you're not hungry then to say we can't eat you know your dentist tells you can't eat for 30 minutes after you brush your sure, sure. And thing and then you're like Oh my God, I could eat a cow. And you're just like, you're seeing food everywhere. So, this idea of the guy sitting there ready to like take on World War seven coming in, and he's like, oh, a Hershey's bar, is right. so <laughs> relatable because it's like, it's, a, it's like that moment you're like, well, focus, just do this. And he's like, oh, but I, you know, squirrel. And I just think that those moments, every time you watch them, that's the, that's the part that allows you to always reconnect. You know, if like movies that you've seen like that, if they're just action based and they're just kind of over the top, you kind of like okay, I've seen this. Yeah, that was kind of enjoyable. But if they can make you laugh or smile, you'll watch it a thousand times because yeah. it's funny every time. Like yeah. even if you're like, I know it's coming, and I, I just see his little his sideways glance down, and I'm like, I know how it's going to play out, and I find myself laughing every <laughs> single time I watch that movie, and it's hilarious.
0: It is. It's so good, and you know. So we can't get too. It's too easy to get caught up in Die hard, so we we have to move, keep moving. So. His next film is The Hunt for Red October. Um, Now just to give you an indication of how this happens, Predator has a $15 million budget and makes $98 million, which at that point, this is the... Yeah, it's like $300 million. Yeah, that's a big deal. Die Hard, $28 million budget, $141 million uh, uh, box office. Then uh, Hunt for Red October comes out, $30 million budget, and makes $200 million, which is just enormous
1: at that point in time so and hunt got, for red october i got a yeah. funny story for you about hunt for Red october i saw it in the movie theater when it first came out and this is the first movie i fell asleep during oh in the theater so i went to it and i'm like oh man i fell asleep but i it was too young and i didn't get to go to the movies that often so i had to wait for it to come out on video and back in the days it took forever to get the video and it was super expensive. Finally saw it, I fell asleep. It took me to the third time I saw it to get through <laughs> the movie. And it's a great movie, but it's, <laughs> but it's so funny because it made so much more money than those other movies. And it did launch a franchise. And I do want to talk about this. Cause this, to me, this is the movie that started to show part of the kinks. Kinks, they're not faults, but he's not perfect when it comes to casting. He's really, really good. But in my opinion, the casting of um, uh, Baldwin, Alec Baldwin, I think is the weakest casting in the thing. And I, I never took him as a leading man. I liked his later career moves where he's moved more into comedy. I think he's got great comedy chops, but yeah. as like a straight-laced, like everyday man, I don't buy it for a second. And I think he missed a little bit of what could have been captured had he cast someone else. I'd have to go back and see kind of who was at the right age at the right time in Hollywood and who I would have suggested. But I think that's the weakest part about this movie, in my opinion, is the casting of Alec Baldwin. That's interesting because at the time,
0: and this film in particular, made Baldwin the guy. Yes. That he was going to be.
1: And he never should have
0: been. (laughs) And Well, no, it's funny. He never wanted to be, interestingly. And Hollywood really punished him for not embracing that level of stardom. And, you know, he was invited into the club and he sort of snubbed them and then they snubbed him for quite some time. Now, I would say this about Alec Baldwin, because I slightly disagree. I think he does a good job in this movie. Um, But when you look at the other um, Tom Clancy films... They've yet to find somebody who could play the part better than Alec Baldwin. So when Harrison Ford plays the role, I think it's really weak. I think when Ben Affleck takes it, it's
1: just atrocious. Yeah, that was, and I, and like, now, I like Chris Pine, uh, but he did a, a, an abysmal job in his take. I yeah. did, I did, the character isn't played as well, but I really did like season one of Jack Ryan on Amazon.
0: I just can't buy Jim from the office. Yeah, um, I
1: never watched The Office, so I don't have yeah. that as a as, a, as I, a. I
0: I can't do it. It that, hurts me.
1: That's it. <laughs> but but uh, if, but if you watch the first, and I think the first season, I think it was more the writing than his performance because the first season. I haven't finished the second season. The second season's so bad in comparison to the first. I actually liked the um, the uh, Harrison Ford ones, but I I feel like they haven't the reason this franchise can work is they haven't quite figured it out yet. They're making money, right. figuring yeah. it out, which is awesome. But yeah. Alec Baldwin, the reason I say it's a kink, he wasn't bad. And and I'll talk about it a little bit with the Thomas Crown Affair as well. It's like some people just cast and you're like, whoa, what were you thinking? And it's mm-hmm. not that. And this is why casting is so tricky. Because you can get close and it's, you know, it's passable. People like it. And, you know, but then you're like, man, if I would have just gone one more over – then the whole world opens up. And I think Alec Baldwin could have, like, that could have been the movie. I mean, I could have potentially doubled the revenue had they had the right person in that row. He didn't hurt the movie. He didn't, like, wreck it or wasn't, like, a sore point. It's just, I feel like they missed on having it have that X factor. But it wasn't like he was bad, if that right. makes sense. No, I get it.
0: It's just, I just can't, I can't picture anybody else doing it. Um, I don't know who would be that. Because that was eighty-eight, right?
1: Yeah.
0: I'll, I'll do. No, some it searching was ninety. nineteen ninety. Okay. Are Are you going through I, your casting files right now? No, I was. I
1: was. I was going to do some searching while you were while you were talking. All right. Know. Well,
0: I'll I'll talk a little bit. So what I find. Interesting I mean, you, about your Hunter boy God Daniel Day Lewis.
1: What do you think? <laughs> Young Daniel Day. Is
0: he had already he had just won a best uh actor his first in uh, yeah from
1: uh yeah my left foot
0: yeah he he just he, that's not his game man he, he's just <laughs> not that. playing that shit um but what's interesting about this movie and we can talk about it in relation to the other ones um is again pacing so mctiernan and this seems so obvious today but at the time it wasn't he uses the computer printout to give you the uh, location, so the setting and the time and basically what's happening. So when he jumps from point to point, he gives you that. And that was not a common uh, uh, thing to do at the time. And it's very smart because it works very easily. It makes things very digestible, the audience. Secondly, he does something which I, I just find fascinating because I hadn't seen the movie in a long time and then it started playing on you know, HBO or something a bunch of months ago and, and I just happened to stumble upon it and I watched it um, and I've watched it a few times since. So you have Sean Connery, Sean Connery playing yes. a Russian. you know, And it's like, uh, okay, why do we have this Scottish-Russian sub-commander? Well, this is kind of weird. But what they do is they open the film and everybody on the Russian sub is speaking Russian, and there's subtitles. And then there's a scene, and it's very subtle, and, and it doesn't, there's not any huge uh, dramatic plot point that takes place at this point. It's just a way for them to transition where Sean Connery says something in Russian, and he's talking in Russian, and the camera moves in close to his mouth, and you just see his mouth. And then it sort of starts pulling away. And then he's speaking English. And it's like McTiernan saying to the audience, okay, well, we had this Russian up till now, but we're just changing it. So you can go along with that. And the audience doesn't even think twice about it.
1: Yeah. It's a, and I, what I love about it is it is a zoom in and zoom out. So there's yep. no cuts to make it seem like what just happened. It, right. it, it, it was like a magician being, okay, now you were watching this but really what I'm holding is not an egg. It's really a flower. And you're like, right. oh, okay. I buy that. I <laughs> yeah. was wrong. You're right. Cool.
0: <laughs> and and it, it just works. And it's so interesting because in terms of language, McTiernan uses it really, really interestingly to tell stories. So with, in Die Hard, uh, the, the terrorists are, uh, speak German. And they speak quite a bit of it and there are no subtitles. Yeah. And so you don't know what they're saying. You can only sort of try and pick it up. And that's intentional because you're not supposed to relate to them. You are supposed to feel like an outsider to them and try and discern what they're saying. Just like if you were a hostage or whatever in hunt for red October, he uses subtitles when they speak Russian because, well, you're supposed to relate to them. Yeah. We're trying to get you relate to Sean Connery as well as Alec Baldwin. Um, later in the Thomas Crown affair, again, there are a bunch of bad guys who speak German uh, or Hungarian or something. And there are no subtitles. And so again, you're left on the outside. And even when uh Rene Russo's character speaks German to these people, there's no subtitles. It's You just pick up everything with body language and her for sort of what she's giving out there. And it's just a really interesting and subtle and, and, and very smart way of creating connection uh, for who the audience is supposed to connect with and who they're not supposed to connect with. And it's just a small throwaway thing that like, you know, it's not like some genius thing, but it's really smart. And very, very few uh, directors would do that Uh, today in particular but like just to do that to set up the dynamics between the audience and different characters and how you're supposed to feel about them and you're not even conscious of it yeah does it so that it works unconsciously on you and it's really really fascinating stuff and so hunt for red october oh i have to say one last thing about die hard by the way sorry about this jumping around die hard i realized this last night when i watched it die hard is a love story and it's not a love story between Bruce Willis and his wife. It's, it's a love story. Reginald between Val Bruce Denny? Willis. Yes. <laughs> between the cop and Bruce Willis. And when they finally meet at the end.
1: It's a bromance. It's like,
0: it's like Brokeback Mountain all of a sudden. <laughs> Music is swelling. They come through the crowd to like hug one another. It's
1: super homoerotic between these two guys. It's but what, crazy. But what I love is. So an, an interesting psychic like psychic or not psychic um uh kind of in the in the brains you've heard this before that men oftentimes have a hard time making close male friendships later in life it's kind of like you're baked in so what's great is his life bruce willis's character's life might be falling apart at this point like he's not sure if he's gonna stay with his wife and kids not gonna sure if he's gonna be on the east or west coast and so he forms this bond with like a male another adult male during the time of like high stress, and it's like you truly believe that like this there's there's a connection there that won 't just okay we're done and we're not going to talk to each other again and there is something truly kind of i think baked in the the male psyche over like that is a desirable thing like I would like to have close male relationships that i didn't necessarily know since the time I was in school, and it it's it's one of those things where i don 't know how subconscious it was when they wrote it. Or, you know, whatnot. But I think, the, I think you're absolutely right. I think that's one of the most appealing, connecting tissue for men, why they love that movie. Because I'm telling you, you know, the, the guy who played the cop, Reginald veldeni was the dad in uh, Family Matters. Oh, he made this. This became his career. But it, this, this, like, I, I grew up watching Family Matters. I loved yeah. Urkel, you know, it was a good, you know, good show. And he was funny in it but this is his like this yes you see him in this and it's like forever that is who he is to me like he he brought that character to life in a way that i've never rarely seen a supporting character just give out such a flushed full rounded performance that you understood and it's and i think in that in that documentary on netflix called the the movies that made us he talks about when they shot it he didn't meet bruce willis till that scene oh really so it's like, they, it, again, they, they form this relationship throughout the movie and all these scenes. And so it's kind of mirrored it in real life. It's like, yeah. they kind of, you know, have this bond and you're like, wow, how fascinating that you can still trick people into, you know, having the real emotions, even though we're just p- play pretending. Right. Yeah.
0: It is it, so funny because just like his casting and, and, so Reginald Valdini, I mean, his career is made with this performance. I mean, it, he, he literally is, you know, his mortgage is paid uh, in, in whatever gigantic <laughs> mansion he's living in right now because he, of this performance. And that's casting. That's putting the right guy in the right place and letting him do his thing. And he's just really good in it, man. Um, so back to Hunt for Red October. Um, extremely successful. This is uh, this adult movie, right? That's like... Yeah, these, and by the way,
1: these movies are no... this. In another direction, maybe we should talk about uh, on a future podcast is, um, uh, oh my gosh, John his name. He did uh, uh, Master and Commander uh, and the Way Home or the Far, oh my gosh, what's his name? Uh, But anyway, they used to make these adults, you know, aimed purely at adults. And they spent money on them because adults would show up to see them. And Hollywood has abandoned this entire group and which yeah. is part of the reason of the exodus to TV is they just don't make stuff like this anymore. And yeah. I think that's where a lot of these great directors that aren't household names became who they were. And now that they don't make those anymore, there's no place for them to work anymore. And you know, television is the land of the writers, you know, the showrunners, the producers. Directors have influence. Most of the time the directors that have influence are the ones that create the pilots. And then oftentimes they don't stay with the show, or you're seeing a lot of it like with Jason Bateman where an actor, producer, and they'll direct their shows as well on Ozark or uh, Outsiders on HBO. So you're getting these auteur directors that aren't household names. They don't have their playgrounds anymore. It's like like nature. Their habitat is being destroyed and we're losing them. And it's sad.
0: And it's a perfect, you're exactly right. And the director you're talking about is Peter Weir. Yes, Peter Um, Weir. And you look at Peter Weir's uh, filmography, you know, once you get into the the heart of it, uh, 1981, Gallipoli, 1982, The Year of Living Dangerously, 1985, Witness, 1986, The Mosquito Coast, 89, Dead Poets Society, 93, Fearless, a movie that I'm sure we're going to
1: talk about. Yes.
0: 98, The Truman Show, 2003, Master and Commander. Uh, Wow, 2010, The Way Back, that's it. Yeah. But, um, but,
1: but but just I mean think about most of those movies are would never be made anymore. No, Mm-mm. like they're, they're like and think about how many of the people were affected by Dead Poet Society or the Truman Show or you know even early early uh, Mel Gibson and Glipoli. I mean these yeah. these are the these are movies that touched people that impacted them that have that have, it said something, and again they're just poof gone. Yeah, and
0: you know Weir is definitely more. Um artistically inclined the
1: macternum but your your point is taken that it, but i mean it, ask, ask normal people nobody knows who peter weir is like yeah, he he, no. he never crossed into like being on someone's master list he's just right. a great craftsman right
0: um all right so we're we're a little crunch for time so we're going to jump ahead right now
1: so i want to uh, talk about my misgivings with the thomas crown affair fair enough so i i'm in general i'm a Pierce Brosnan fan you know, yes, and to be fair, we have to
0: tell the audience uh, it's a, it's in terms remake. of it, it is a remake, and also that Barry did have an affair with someone named Thomas Crown <laughs> at one point in his life, which we're not going to get into that personal stuff. So go ahead, Barry. Thanks,
1: thanks, Mike. Thanks for bringing up such great memories. Uh, the Pierce Brosnan, he's kind of a movie star. He's not like the greatest actor, but I, I like his shtick when he's in, and I think he's fine in this. Uh, Rene Russo, Uh, sometimes is outstanding, sometimes is beyond mediocre. And I think the biggest failing is not in the casting of either of them. It's in the lack of chemistry between the two of them. It's the sort of thing where, you know, they try really hard, (laughs) but I never really buy that there's this emotional connection between the two of them. I see each of them having their own journey throughout the movie of, you know, can I trust this person? You know, how do I how do I play my cards in this weird sort of dance they're doing? And they do each one individually well, but I just never... There's just sometimes you just pour gasoline on a fire that's there, and that was not in this movie, and it's not the fault of anybody unless they would have had time to do more, you know, screen tests with them, but it's possible these were pay-or-play deals and they didn't get a chance to do that.
0: Yeah, here's... Here's what I find interesting about the Thomas Crown Affair, which is a movie I didn't see in the theater. I had no interest in seeing, I, you know, when it came out, I was not really the demographic it's shooting for. Um, but it is a fascinating thing to me when I look back on it, because I remember when it came out and I remember it it did quite well. Yes. Uh, Made for 48 million, made 124 million. Um, for this type of movie that's extraordinary and people went sort of a certain age group went sort of crazy for it um because it was a sexy movie with two middle-aged stars in it yes who weren't by the way who weren't even huge stars
1: um you know, I, I I I will I will say it is ironic that yes, they are two middle-aged people that are amongst the better gene pool ever put on earth that are both oh, yeah. in yeah. extremely good condition. So it's like well, it's 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 not it's not a uh uh bridges of Madison County where <laughs> you know you're kind of oh, like, Oh, yeah, that person looks yeah. like me. This is like, oh yeah. yeah, I've never seen a human being look like that before.
0: No, it isn't, but Renee Russo, when she plays this role and it's a very sexy role, she does nudity in it. Um you know, it, it it's she's meant to be very sexy. Yeah. She's 45 years old when they yeah. shoot this. And that would never happen now. Correct. And to the film's credit, they embrace that. They're just like, Yeah, we're this is what we're doing. Cause they could have cast, you know, uh, Angelina Jolie in this thing, yeah. for goodness sakes. And they didn't. And Pierce Brosnan is not somebody that I really have much respect for as an actor you know he does his thing i get it um but he does well in this movie he does and it's he and and renee russo who again is hit or miss and i think a lot of it has to do with she went into when this happened for her um she was at an age where people don't know what to do with her yeah and so she ended up doing that weird monkey movie I think after this, whatever Outbreak? the hell that was. No, no, no. The the one where she's like a, a lady raising monkeys,
1: shit like that. Oh, I don't so think raised, I, I oh, don't yeah. think I saw that one. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! That, that would go under movie the miss category. Definitely, I got to find this
0: because it was just like <laughs> the most horrifying thing you've ever seen in your life. It was just terrifyingly terrible. Literally, um, everybody
1: listening now has their notepads out waiting for this title because they can't wait I to gotta go see. i got to find
0: this goddamn monkey movie. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what is this thing? Uh, here we go. Let's see. Um, is it Big Trouble? Is that it? No, that's not it. I can't find the movie. But she, So she did this crazy, stupid monkey movie. Um, when the hell was that movie? It's going to drive me crazy. Okay, so... Anyway, but she, she's really good in this movie, and he is good in this movie. And I would actually argue against your – I don't think they have natural chemistry. I agree with you on that. But I do think McTiernan creates a chemistry between the two of them. And part of it, why the movie was successful, is that adult women could watch Buddy. the movie. Buddy buddy
1: yes buddy is the name an eccentric socialite (laughs) raises a gorilla as her son and it has 4.9 out of 10 uh (laughs) i think i think we need to do i've never seen this movie i remember the poster we very well might have to it's rated pg for some threatening animal action i want to know what this is Everything about this movie now has me curious. I but-
0: think we may do a very special episode of monkey movies because there's also. Oh my one gosh. Jo- yes.
1: Joey please. from Friends did the yes. movie. Yes. Ed the, the Pitching Monkey. monkey. Yeah, I, I've baseball. always wanted to see that movie. <laughs> <laughs> At the height Are of Friends, the- I'm going to become a movie star and I'm going to go make a movie with a pitching monkey. And you got oh. Clint Eastwood with his orangutan. Absolutely. That's definitely a Love movie. it. And I will tell you, there's a story behind The Pitching
0: Monkey, which is quite an elaborate story and a little bit dark, by the way. But I'll get into it when we do The Monkey podcast. Um, So The Thomas Crown Affair, what it is, is that adults could watch that and be like, wow, uh, Rene Russo is is a beautiful woman, and she is. She's just incredibly uh, gorgeous. And she plays this sort of, you know, Tough lady, a little bit, but she's classy and all this stuff. And adults can watch that and, and either project themselves onto her because of the age, or uh, can look at Pierce Brosnan, Brosnan and, in a way, his life is is capitalism porn. He has he's this you know big finance guy and he's super rich and they he flies you know his own jets and he's all this this and that and yet he does this stuff. He steals art because it's it's exhilarating. And so women can go for him, guys can go for Rene, Rene Russo, and guys can also want to be Pierce Brosnan, and women can want to be Rene Rousseau. And it's this perfect storm of you know, mature, you know, it's it's not, you know, like porn for God's sakes, but it's like adult entertainment that like grown-ups can watch it and be like, oh wow, this is interesting. It's entertaining. There are funny parts in it. It's sexy. And it has a bunch of stuff in it. And I don't know. I want to check real quick who the cinematographer on this is. Okay. It's not the same guy. Um, but Jan DeBont, uh, or Jan DeBont, de yep. he, uh, he, he worked with McTiernan a lot in the beginning. And he did uh, Die Hard and, and all these things. And he ended up doing Speed. He, he Speed and director. Twister, baby. Yeah. And, you know, not bad for Jan, but, like, it's funny because in all these films, there is some of the same style to them, and they end up being McTiernan. And so, flares of light are a big McTiernan thing, which it become sort of passe now. But back then, it was like, ooh, this is well, sexy he, and cool.
1: He learned from, I think he uses a lot of anamorphic lenses as well, from what I could tell Um but he took some of the stylized of, uh, shots of uh, Ridley and early Spielberg with those yeah. lenses. But he, he put them in more mainstream. So he didn't go kind of this futuristic sci-fi. He just put them in normal kind of you know everyday kind of settings. And it really, really works. And the thing that I love is in early cinema history, going back to the Frank Capra's in the 30s, there always used to be these great scenes where someone walks toward the camera and it almost comes up to their eye. So you get these uncomfortably close shots that completely left in the 70s with the zoom lenses and has all but disappeared from cinema in the modern time. So he kind of brought back this really cool thing where you see someone, you see their face as they're coming, you see this emotion, and then they cut off either their eyes or their mouth and they force you to really be uncomfortably close trying to kind of connect or process what this person is. And I think it's a really effective, interesting tool that kind of is absolutely one of his hallmark, like, traits. Like, it's definitely one of his go-to shots. And I think it really, really works. And I kind of wish more people did it. And it's so
0: interesting that he does it in the Thomas affair because, as we said, you know, his two stars are middle age, And so when you're that close, you're going to see a lot of flaws and things like that. Of course, with Rene Russo, there's just – she's impeccable she's just this yeah. perfect same creature go,
1: same goes for pierce i mean they they but i mean i guarantee i've worked with actors of that age group and tell they are hyper aware yeah. of like they don't want to like give any ground on aging so i yeah. mean you gotta get you have to have buy-in from your actors even even yeah. when they are kind of that rare genetic lottery where they happen to look really good for their age You know it still affects them and they still have the mentality so I mean kudos to all of them for their their willingness to go there. And the other thing
0: that he does in Thomas Crown Affair uh, which he does very well in Die Hard um, is his use of music and the Thomas Crown Affair he uses this weird sort of it's almost a live recording of some it is Caribbean uh, performance (laughs) and it's it's very odd and you're sort of like what what is going on but it really works and it works to create um pacing and and an, an energy to the film which could really be stagnant without it because you know it's a little bit sort of uh the story anyway is a little slow it's, it 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 takes its time to to unwind itself and uh he uses music so well to keep things really moving and to sort of uh let the audience stay connected in terms of the emotional uh, story that's going on as opposed to like the action sort of stuff. And I just, I I find the Thomas Crown Affair to be fascinating. And I've watched it, you know, I've stumbled across it a bunch of times and I just watch it from wherever it picks up because I'm fascinated by McTiernan sort of crap. Same with Hunter Red October. It just grabs you. And as somebody who, you know, considers themselves a cinephile, I just get swept up in that. I'm just like, God damn, this guy can make a movie. And nobody can do that anymore. Correct. Nobody knows how to do this stuff. And it seems so basic back then. In in fact, I mean McTiernan was like a punchline for quite some time just because of the type of movies he made. Yeah. And they were so say be like, ah, oh, McTiernan, ha. But like this cat knows what he's doing. And it's so funny because it's a lost art.
1: Now now people complain how come there's nothing good anymore. Well, it's because right. you mocked McTiernan when he was making them. Exactly. So then Everyone's like, I don't want to make movies like him. I'll do it a different way. And now we're stuck with less talented directors that are making the content that we're watching.
0: Now, in the course of McTiernan's career, which started, uh, his first film was in 86. His first big hit was Predator in 87. And his last film is 2003. Now, in the course of that time, uh, basically 17 years, he makes all these movies and his career goes through an arc and let me see, in 86, he was, um, he was 35 when he made his first movie, Um, which, you know, is that that's actually pretty young. So he makes this movie and (laughs) makes predator hit Die Hard hit hunt for red October hit medicine, man, not so much a hit last action hero, big flop. Like, it was a Schwarzenegger movie and supposed to be a big hit. It was not. Big flop. But then he comes back with Die Hard with a Vengeance, which he missed the second Die Hard. He makes the third. And it's a big big hit. uh, Yeah, finish your thought. And then he makes the 13th. And then the other thing is the cat makes movies fast. Yes, he does. So in 1990, he makes two movies, 13th Warrior and the Thomas Crown Affair. 13th warrior is uh, i think it's Antonio, Antonio Banderas. Banderas yep and you know uh very weird movie yeah and it fails it's it's a flop at the box office Thomas Crown Affair big hit but then in 2002 he does a remake which Thomas Crown Affair was a remake he follows it up with a remake of Rollerball
1: which uh by the way Roller yes Gene Reno who i love LL Cool J yes. and Rebecca Romaine Stamos I'm not sure where it went wrong, but it might be somewhere in there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure where it went wrong, but it went wrong.
0: Yeah. Um, it's a remake of a Norman Jewison film, very similar director, which starred James Kahn, John Houseman, you know, just to give you an indication of what we're talking about. So Rollerball is a disaster area. And then he follows it up with Basic, which I think is John Travolta, right? It is. John Travolta. Yeah, John Travolta. And, um, and
1: Samuel Jackson.
0: Yeah, that, that loses money, too. And that's his last movie. But we have to talk about Rollerball, which I've never seen. And I never, never will see. I can't, I've seen the original. I enjoy it. It's good. Um, but things start going off the rails with Rollerball for Mr. McTiernan. So we're running out of time. So we have to tell you the life story of John McTiernan. <laughs> <laughs> so in 2006, John McTiernan is charged in federal court with making a false statement to an FBI investigator. Uh, about hiring the private investigator Anthony Pelicano to illegally wiretap Charles Rovin, who is the producer of the film Rollerball in the year 2000. Now, Anthony Pelicano, if you know anything, is, is like one of the world class scumbags uh, out here in Hollywood. He's like, uh, you know, muscle for hire sort of guy who's always up to no good. Well, that's what happened here. And McTiernan hired him to spy on the producer of. Rollerball cuz he thought he was being undermined by this guy. Uh it goes to to court and McTiernan at first pleads guilty and then ch- changes his plea back and the FBI ends up charging him with more crimes saying he spied on his ex-wife as well during their divorce and all this sort of stuff. So McTiernan ends up let me check the year. He ends up eventually going into prison and it almost goes to the Supreme Court, by the way. This case, it's crazy. This case is insane uh, because Pelicano testified against him, and it had taped McTiernan himself, and that was used against him. But they were I re- saying, "I
1: remember this was my own personal O.J. Simpson trial." Yeah, of just wondering what was happening out <laughs> out west, and I'm like, because I, I liked his movies, I'm like, "What is happening right now?" Um, oh, I, I remember all this. Yeah. So th- this takes
0: years because it's like. In, in the court system and like going back and forth and guilty pleas and then retracting pleas and then more charges and then going up through the appeals courts and then all the way to the Supreme Court, who eventually just declined to hear the case. But he ends up being sentenced to 12 months in federal prison in uh, 2013. Um, he serves 328 days of that and then serves the rest of his prison sentence at his uh, ranch in Wyoming. And gets out in 2014. Um, his wife sues him um, for invasion of privacy, his ex-wife. And, you know, th- I'm sure that costs him a lot of money. And then, uh, so he basically has to file for bankruptcy because he loses everything. Yep. And he's just, he's decimated. He's, he's lost, this cat has lost everything. I have no idea what he's doing right now, where he lives. He, he could be my neighbor for all I know. So um,
1: here, here's an interesting thing. If you, if you look him up on IMDb, because he hasn't worked you know now in like 15 years, there is a project in pre-production. And I have no idea how to pronounce it. It's like Tao Siet-Four. It's a- Yes, yeah. And it's supposedly starring Uma Thurman. It was written by John McTiernan and directed by him, uh, but it's kind of in a permanent stasis of in-production. So I don't know if it's oh, actually dear. ever going to come to fruition. And I would be very curious if someone of Uma Thurman's status- would want to go into business with this guy who's wiretapping and kind of giving Hollywood a bad name, but it's at risk reward. You know, if you can work with a director of his caliber and he's not being a criminal, then uh, that does well for a career that in Uma Thurman's case is not red hot right now. Well, he's
0: 69 years old and he has not made a movie in uh, 17 years. Uh, Not including this new thing, which nobody knows what it is that's pretty crazy yeah and the crazy part is, is that he's such this he, at, at the time he was such a powerful force sort of in the industry because he was this kingmaker he could really make people super successful and so people wanted to work with him now of course that's gone and his style of filmmaking is uh you know a dinosaur it, it like these movies don't get made and it's just, it's fascinating to me, his life and he gets all messed up with like, you know, going to prison and um, you know, and let's not kid ourselves. It's not like he's, you know, in some hardcore prison. He went to basically a a cushy little prison camp thing, but you know, it's still prison and apparently it was very hard on him. He he suffered depression, lost 30 pounds, et cetera, et cetera. Um, But his life is a movie. Yes. Right? But I don't think he could make it, but his life is a film. And, and it's fascinating watching this, these movies because you never really get a sense of who John McTiernan is because he's not an auteur. Yeah. He's a craftsman. Now, if he were an auteur, you'd get to know him. You watch a Scorsese film. You know Martin Scorsese a little bit. Uh, you know, Paul Thomas Anderson, same thing, like, you get to know these people through their their art. Whereas McTiernan, there's always this distance. He is there to entertain you, not to reveal himself. And he entertains you quite well. But he, he's he's an enigma. And he's an enigma in the business. He's an enigma as a human being. And I'm somewhat fascinated with this character. And I hope somebody makes a movie about his life. I hope he writes it himself and sells it so he gets a little bit of money and can, you know, uh, retirement. Yeah, you know, have a retirement. But like, it, it's, cra- it's a crazy story. He, he's an interesting, interesting filmmaker. And I personally would recommend, uh, you know, if you're looking for just some light stuff to watch to, to pass the time in quarantine, I'd say Predator, Die Hard, The Hunt for Red October, Die Hard with a Vengeance, uh, and The Thomas Crown Affair are pretty solid choices.
1: So I'm going to say this, you know, again, we have a a mixed listenership in terms of kind of what their interests are. And I know some people are always like curious on how I watch a movie. What am I looking for? And how do I analyze it? And this is like a great, like if you, if you're, if you don't want to analyze, but you just kind of want to think about like what makes a director like good, I would recommend people have a, a triple feature night or maybe it's back to back nights, watch Die Hard. Watch Die Hard Two and then watch Die Hard with a Vengeance. Because what's fascinating is Die Hard's so good. And if you've seen it many times, you know, it'll just refresh your memory. And then we watch Die Hard Two. When I saw Die Hard Two, I loved Die Hard Two. Now when I've gotten older and watched it, Rennie Harlan is maybe the biggest enigma in terms of how he continues to get work with how bad he is as a director. Yeah, Die Hard Two, everything that's good is gone. From Die Hard One. And then when you go to Die Hard Three, Die Hard with a Vengeance, suddenly it's like, oh, this all works again. And it's almost exclusively in the category of the director because the scripts all have enough there that you could do something with. But it's like, just pay attention, watch one, two, three, and you will understand the little subtle things that McTiernan does that you're like, wow, yeah, I, for some reason, I just like his movies better. And that is, that is, the core of who he is. He entertains yeah. you. And then you walk away going "Oh, I'd watch that again.
0: The great, his greatest skill. And, and the, those three diehard films are a perfect example with him making two and Rennie Harlan making uh, the one in the middle. Um, what McTierner is so good at, which people forget how to do is he makes coherent movies. You understand what's happening the the plot and the story are clear to you and you don't get lost. Things are not muddled. He's very specific and clear. And and part of that has to do with his attention to, to detail. And so a lot of that comes from comedy, knowing when to put things where, things like that. But like Rennie Harlan with the second Die Hard, the problem with that movie is that it's very muddled and incoherent in many ways. Yes. And, seeing the difference between Rennie Harlan's Die Hard and McTiernan's is a a lesson in coherence, in narrative coherence, having everything going in the same direction and in the right direction. And as you can attest, God, that is a blessing when you can see it happen. Go ahead. A movie, everything is going in the right way and there's no sort of loose uh, stuff. There's no fat on the bone and it's like, man, this cat knows what he's doing. And that's the joy of a McTiernan movie. Um, you know, The Hunt for Red October is a perfect example. It's a sprawling story all over the, the globe and like these different countries and all these different ships. And yet he's able to just yeah tell the story and it moves along. And like perfect example of casting, uh, what's his name? Uh, Sam Neil. No, although Sam, Sam Neill is very good in that movie. Uh, the, the um, Stellan Skarsgård. Oh, yes. Stellan Skarsgård has a, a small role in that movie. He plays another Russian subcommander. And he's this arrogant guy. And he maybe has two scenes where he actually talks. And yet he conveys exactly who he is in those two scenes. And you know who he is. And that means something in the larger picture of the movie in terms of the narrative. It's important that he's an arrogant son of a bitch because he gets himself and his crew killed because he's an arrogant son of a bitch. And the yeah. ch- the choice he makes is on the outside, you think like, Oh, that's too risky. That's, you know, but it's like, no, not for him. We know who this guy is and we know why it's driving him to kill uh, uh, the other Russian subcommander, yeah. you know? And, and so like small things like that is, it's coherence, it's clarity, and it works on every level. And if you have a film like that that can that, on every level can work and is all moving in the right direction to tell the story, it's just effort. It feels effortless, although obviously, as we know, it is not effortless. Yes, it takes is. a lot of effort and a lot of mm-hmm. planning and a lot of skill and talent to pull that off, and that's who McTiernan is at his best. Anyway, that's yes. who McTiernan is. Agreed. Um, now, granted, he's much better at making movies than he is at uh, committing crime. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but very, sadly, true, very true but sadly he's not he's not making movies anymore so you know uh maybe you should try a life of crime and he'll get better at it who knows we don't know
1: <laughs> if john's listening <laughs> that's yeah, our
0: advice. no if john is listening you know what i wish you were making movies man i think you're fantastic and uh you're those movies are not my type of movies i like auteurs i like you know paul thomas Anderson, martin scorsese you name it but he makes, McTiernan makes these movies so well that I became a fan of his because of the skill that he possesses and, and his mastery of craft, which is what I really, really love. That's it. So Barry, any closing thoughts on our very special episode of the Look at California, Feel in Minnesota, John McTiernan Trials and Tribulations?
1: No, I mean, go see his movies. If you, wanna, if, you, if you don't understand all these little nuances, watch Die Hard 1, then Die Hard 2, then Die Hard 3. So you bookend it with a McTiernan version of the same story. Um, otherwise, pick one of his movies and, uh, and enjoy the subtleties of which he brings uh, to the craft of directing.
0: I, I concur, except I would say pick one of the movies that we, we talked about. Don't pick The Last Action Hero, Rollerball, or Basic, or The 13th Warrior for that matter. Stay, yeah. steer clear of those.
1: Um, <laughs> but <laughs> check. Out yeah, I guarantee there's heart. things in yeah. those that are that would be good to watch from him. But yeah, definitely take his better work so that you can really yeah. understand what's happening.
0: Yeah, and then you know that'll fill up some of your quarantine time. Uh, it'll be
1: a piece of cake.
0: All right, so uh, everybody, thank you for listening to this very very special episode of Flip in California, Field Minnesota. I'm Michael McCaffrey. That's Barry Anderson, and we'll see you next time.